Hello, welcome to Second World Problems, the first best world building podcast. As always, I'm Morgan, and as always, I'm joined by Finn. Hello. Hello. How are we doing? All right. <laughs> Ready to dive into a uh, galaxy far, far away? Absolutely. Once again, we are returning, this time with less rants, so that's good. Oh, well, that's good. Less rants. I don't know. Rants can be fun. Sometimes Depends on what we're ranting about. I think we've exhausted my rant on the Jedi for now. Yeah, fair. Um, yeah, so if you haven't figured out, this episode we are doing a Star Wars product, and I am your friendly droid BD-1. Very nice. And I am Eno Cordova coming at you from a message saying, failure is not the end, and I believe in you. It's very positive, very uplifting. Yeah. Good old Master Cordova. That's my favorite part of the game. <laughs> when he replays that message. I love it. It's so good. What game would that be? Just That would know. be Jedi Fallen Order. Ooh, good or game. Or Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order is its full title, <laughs> but we'll just call it Jedi Fallen Order. Yeah. F-A. Far. F-A. J-F-A. So it is, um, for a little bit of background, a single-player video game released in 2019. It was developed by Respawn Entertainment and published by EA Games. Um, and it tells the original canon story of Cal Kestis, a surviving Jedi Padawan, and his quest to follow in the footsteps of Jedi Master Eno Cordova and recover a hidden holocron containing the names of future Force-sensitive children. And it is set five years after the events of Star Wars Episode Three: The Clone Wars, or Revenge of the Sith. Yep, that sums it up. From my, I've been a while since I played it, but that sounds about right. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's it's a pretty pretty simple story, but a good one. Um, the world is obviously the Star Wars universe, but it's places not seen. So places we may have heard of, but not necessarily been before or spent a lot of time on. Um, so that's fun. So it's, it's mostly all new sort of stuff, but there's a few cameos, a few sort of Easter eggs here and there for, for people who are big fans, but on the whole, pretty original story. Yeah. And it, it says it's in the Star Wars universe, but it kind of like, kind of uh, keeps you contained in like six or five planets so you can't yeah you don't really have like a whole universe to explore just like five planets but still you know i think the vibes there you get the idea of like the star wars universe within those planets yeah um so we said it's original story um it is adding to canon but it's doing it in an interesting way because it is contained and like i said it, it has uh, a few cameos for the already established canon um but they also are fairly contained and also it has few consequences for canon so like there's not much that um this game adds to canon that can then sort of roll on in any sort of negative negative way there's no chances for like blips of like what's the word like not spoilers like the no goose oh goose right yeah they haven't like they don't have to go back and retcon anything because they yeah. messed up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it has it's a game with good stakes. I find I found that it had like a good amount of like uh, pressure for the player to succeed, but like an enjoyable game all the same. And it has an ending that feels earned once you get there and is satisfying in its complete arc. And leaves it still leaves openings for interesting characters to have roles elsewhere and be picked up by others in other works, but like. It is in itself a contained story and like, you know, there's always like maybe a character could come back in something else, but it doesn't have to. They can leave it or they can like, you know, add add in some stuff if they want to. So Yeah, well, they already do themselves a favor by like casting like 
I think it's Dominic Monaghan or whatever. Yeah. As like Cal Kestis is like, that's a real person. So if they want to bring him into like live action, he's ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think the um, graphics are really good in this. Like you can tell that they use the technology that allows them to take a real person's face and make it like a computer generated face. I think that's pretty cool. Um does mean it has no like character design system, which you know I love my character design systems, but still a pretty good game all the same. Yeah, you can't do a good monster factory with this one. No, and that's that's always a shame. It is always a shame. <laughs> you just want to create just the worst possible specimen. Yeah, I mean that's all I I love watching that. Um, it's the only thing I want to see, but not for this game, unfortunately. <laughs> no possibility of that. Um, so as you said, it's contained to a couple of um, separate planets, but not too many. So there's Braca, which is where the game sort of starts, I guess. So it's an inhospitable junkyard planet located in the galaxy's mid-rim. It's located to various um, hyperspace routes. So Braca's strategic importance made it a site of campaign during the Clone Wars. During the reign of the Galactic Empire, the Scrapper Guild operated on the planet, breaking down starship wreckage and selling components to the Empire. The other um, One of the other planets is then Bogano, which is a grassy planet in the Outer Rim Territories. It was largely unexplored during the time of the Imperial Era and couldn't be found on any maps. Its surface is covered in messes and wetlands. The planet is home to a great vault built by the ancient Zephyr civilization. Bogano was important to the Zephyr due to the presence of the Binog, a large creature important to Zephyr art and culture. Another reason for the vault's location was theorized by Eno Cordova to be because of the light electromagnetic winds, although in much smaller conditions than Zephyr's homeworld. Um, At least one Zephyr colony was located on Bagano, likely as a pilgrimage site. The vault hides away um, the holocron that Cal is looking for, containing the list of Force-sensitive children in the galaxy, um, and was placed there by Jedi Master Eno Cordova. So... Important that you return there. Yeah, got to you. Got to go get that list. That's kind of the crux. Of the show. Yeah, <laughs> there's no there's no game if you're not doing that. Then there's Zepho. So um, Zepho is an electromagnetic windswept planet located in the outer rim, a water rich world. Its terrain consisted consisted of rocky mountains and cliffs, and its surface was covered in grass. The planet featured a number of ruins and crypts. Zepho was once home to a community of archaeologists and pioneers who visited the planet during the time of the Galactic Republic. When the Galactic Republic rose to power, the peaceful community was destroyed by the... um, When the Galactic Empire rose to power, sorry, after the Galactic Republic, the peaceful community was destroyed by pillaging of historical sites and sacred tombs. And then we also see Kashyyyk, which is, I would say, the most comprehensive view we get of Kashyyyk because we get like a little bit in the Clone Wars series, but that's really it from memory. There's some in Clone Wars, some in episode three. Yeah, episode three, where Yoda, because that's where Yoda is during the campaign. Yeah, but like you don't get a lot. No, and then like you can run around a bit in Battlefront yeah. 2, um, but this is more, This I think this is definitely more in depth than the most yeah. you get, I think. So Kashyyyk is also known as Planet Wookiee Sea to some humans in the Core Worlds, and it's um, a mid-rim tree-covered forest-slash-jungle planet located in the southwestern quadrant of the galaxy and is the homeworld of the Wookiee species. Four millennia before the Battle of Yavin, Kashyyyk was discovered by the Sezerka Corporation, um, who also feature in our beloved book, uh, Master and Apprentice. Mm. 
They enslaved the Wookiee population and renamed the planet G5623 and then later Eden, um, Eden, like Eden, but with an A in it. E-D-E-A-N. E-D-E-A-N. Yeah. Oh, weird. Eden. Um, during the Clone Wars, Kashyyyk was a, um, a member of the Galactic Republic and endured enslavement under the Galactic Empire. Later, during the rise of the New Republic, Kashyyyk was liberated with the help of Republic forces led by Han Solo. And then we get to the cool place, which is Dathomir, which Love you see Dathomir. a lot in Clone Wars, the Clone Wars series, and I always enjoy going there. Dathomir is cool. It's just like it's it's so it's got like a ominous, mystic thing about it, mystery about it. Yeah, and it's like you know Darth Maul is like an infamous character. He's he hails from Dathomir. Yeah, and then you get like his brother Savage as well. Oppress. Mm the best name it is very cool <laughs> okay so dathomir is nicknamed the rancor planet because it has rancors on it surprise um and it's a remote neutral planet in the quelly sector and home of the night sisters night brothers blue coral divers clan singing mountain and the howling crag so just cool cool names come from dathomir yeah all the cool stuff it's just the yeah. coolest planet it seems hot though <laughs> Yeah, yeah, warm. I, yeah. Humid, I think, is the humid. Like, it, it seems kind very, of wet, but also very warm. sticky. <laughs> the stickiest planet in the Star Wars. Yeah. Um, the planet bathed in blood red light by its central star. See, that's why, because it's, it's got the red lighting. Mm. It makes it seem very deserty, but it's not. It's very rocky. Um, so the planet bathed in blood red light by its central star has numerous continents that were overrun with vegetation, forests, and swamplands. The dark side of the Force has an immensely strong presence on Dathomir, which allows for the nurturing of many malevolent Force wielders native to the planet, such as Darth Maul. Um, the Night Sisters, also known as the Dathomir Witches, made their home in the swamps and wielded magics fueled by Dathomir's own power. Dathomir was also home to the Night Brothers, Zabrax, who were ruled by the Night Sisters. It was also the homeworld of the semi-sentient Rancor species. During the Clone Wars, Dathomir would come under attack multiple times times due to the machinations of Mother Talzin and her rival Darth Sidious, leading to the destruction of most of the Night Sisters and, settle and settlements on the planet by the Confederacy, Confederacy of Independent Systems after conquering it. Asajj Ventress, a Night Sister trained by Count Dooku, returned to Mother Talzin after her master betrayed her. This drew Dooku's attention to Dathomir, resulting in the slaughter of the Night Sisters. This left Talzin, Ventress, Marin, Shellish, Jacera and Yenna as the only known survivors. In Star Wars Rebels, Maul returns to Dathomir with Ezra, Ezra Bridger to conduct a ritual that involves summoning the spirits of fallen Night Sisters in order to reveal fragment, fragments of a holocron vision. Um, you also briefly travel to Ilum, which is a temple that you see briefly in the Clone Wars series as well, um, in order to retrieve a kyber crystal. Um, and you also go to the Inquisitor Headquarters or the Fortress Inquisitorius, which is a heavily armed underwater stronghold located on the moon of Nur. Nur? Nur? And you are. And you Nur. Let's go with Nur. 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 It just sounds like an Australian saying no. Yeah, do you want to go there? Nur. The game, importantly, at least to me, allows you to customize your own lightsaber because obviously if they didn't allow you to do that, there would be absolutely riots, riots in the streets. <laughs> they didn't do that. Yeah, you um, can customize your lightsaber and you can choose which colored poncho you want to wear. <laughs> I chose to go poncho-less. Yeah, I hated all the me, ponchos. Me too. 
<laughs> I was like, no ponchos. It was not my vibe. <laughs> so you can cu- customize your lightsaber by color of the blade, type of metal for the hilt, and other details. The Jedi Order of the late Galactic Republic made use of four styles of lightsaber. Duty and Resolve, Peace and Justice, Elemental Nature, and Valor and Wisdom. The former two were simple designs intended to reflect the Jedi commitment to a life of devotion to the Force and the Order's ideals. The latter two made use of resilient natural materials derived from flora and fauna to evoke the living force. The game allows you to mix and match those styles as you please, which is nice. Um, I was a big Valor and Wisdom fan. I just thought they looked much so, so much nicer. Mm, I think it was Valor and Wisdom and then was the other one Balance and something? Judy and Resolve? Judy and Resolve, yeah. I think I crossed over those two a lot. Mm. So there's another style that does not feature in the game, which is protection and defense. And this was a style favored by the earliest Force users in ancient times. It featured designs and inscriptions with meanings that have become shrouded in mystery. But the style itself was believed to have been created with the intent of conferring anonymity upon and symbolizing the emotional detachment of the wielder who would use their lightsaber strictly for personal protection. Um, as stated in one in that one episode of Clone Wars, which is the one where they go to the temple at Ilum or the one directly after it, each Jedi's lightsaber is unique and custom-built by its wielder, though it may take inspirations from generations of lightsabers made before it and rarely can be passed down from one Jedi to another, as happens with Anakin to Luke and then also Eno Cordova to Cal. So it's great that the game incorporates some of that by allowing you to customize your own lightsaber. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it partakes in that extremely rare occasion when a lightsaber is passed down from a master to a, to a Padawan or a master to another yeah. Jedi. I don't, I don't know if anyone cares, but you know, um, double lightsaber orange was my combo. Nice. <laughs> um, my, I think mine was double lightsaber and then it, I think it's, I had it originally as yellow and then changed it to magenta. Nice. You gotta, it's also like the idea of like, it's just the same all the time. If I was a Jedi, I'd want to mix it up every now and then. I'm like, I feel like yeah. changing colors. Yeah. Or I might have had white. Can you have white? I, I think you white. can unlock it later. Yeah. There's a couple like that unlock. Like a Tano. <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, white. <laughs> I think it's like a, um, the game um, also allows you to, obviously, as a Jedi, manipulate the Force. So the game mechanics of the Force are, I would say, actually pretty good. Um, and also show manipulations of the force that none of the shows or films have really gotten into or shown before. So you get like the normal push and pull, but you also get slow and then you get memory imprints or force echoes. And I think it the game's quite good at like um, showing the force as like, or like the manipulations of the force as like, you can think about it as like an intent. So like it's like in terms of like, if you're thinking about the force as like a form of magic, it functions by intent. And like push and pull are really easy and tense to have. And also like slow is sort of like stop. Yeah. I just thought that was interesting that like it sort of like shows how the force could work as a mechanic and not just in terms of like a game mechanic, but the force as a whole. Yeah. I think they use the force really well. They also, they, they couldn't, if I think they are making a second and they definitely can't do this in the second, but they found a good way to make you not have all the powers at the start and make it seem yeah. within the story and with how the force works is like you're, you're kind of stilted and blocked like a yeah like yeah. chi almost but yeah i don't know if they could do that again but for this one game that worked really well that did work really well that like yeah cal ha- in as cal rediscovers his connection to the force you access like your ability tree yeah always good and interesting and not something that a lot of games 
do. Normally it's just like skill points and then you upgrade. You can get better by buying stuff. Yeah, pretty much. Um, so Cal is the main character of the game. So he was a Padawan of Jedi Master Jaro Tapal. He served alongside his mentor in the Clone Wars until the Grand Army of the Republic betrayed the Jedi under Order 66. His master sacrificed his life, allowing Cal to escape and go into exile on the planet Braca, working as a rigger for the Scrapper Guild until he was discovered by the Second and Ninth Sisters, Inquisitors of the Empire. Cal then joins the crew of the starship Stinger Mantis, which are originally Seer and Grease, after they rescue him from the Inquisitors. So Grease is the captain of the Stinger Mantis. He works for Seer. He is a Latero male and is known to have a bad gambling habit and gets into trouble with the Haxion brood. So a Latero, also known as a Lateron, are a sentient species from the planet Lateron that possesses four arms, and they also reportedly have a keen sense of smell, but I'm not sure the game ever told us that. <laughs> the Haxion brood is a crime syndicate that operated throughout the Outer Rim, led by crime boss Sork Tormo. The syndicate's headquarters is Auto Eris, an asteroid stronghold that serves as the center for the Haxion Brood's power structure. The Brood seem to dominate the gambling um, and parts of the smuggling center, sector of the underworld. The Haxion Brood consists, consists of a number of cybernetically enhanced bounty hunters and their accompanying reprogrammed bounty droids made from stolen droid parts. Um, and the Haxion Brood, I think, are also featured in the Clone Wars series. Lots of crossovers. Yeah, they would have at least been mentioned. I'm pretty sure they might have been the ones involved in the the arc on Mandalore with like the poisoned, not poisoned, but the drinks. Yeah. 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 That sounds familiar. Really feeling how much I remember of Clone Wars. Series. <laughs> More than I expected. Um, Sia is a, and I think that's how they pronounce her name, but it's spelt strangely. So it's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, it's C E R E, right? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Sia. I think that's how they say it. Yeah. So Seer is a former Jedi Knight and Jedi Seeker who mentors Cal in the ways of the Force during the rise of the Galactic Empire and eventually knights him. If you remember from our last episode on the Jedi, the Jedi Seeker are the Jedi Seekers are the ones who seek out Force-sensitive children and return them to the temple. She was the Padawan of Jedi Master Eno Cordova and took Trilla Suduri as her apprentice. In the aftermath of Order 66, Seer severed her connection to the Force and disappeared into hiding while Trilla fell to the dark side and joined the Imperial Inquisitorius as second sister. When Seer witnessed her former Padawan in Imperial garb, she flew into a rage and used the dark side to kill everyone in the room but second sister, escaping afterwards. Determined to overthrow the regime that all but annihilated the Jedi, Seer has dedicated herself to the secret restoration of the Jedi Order. Hence why she wants to find the lost holocron and rebuild the Jedi Order. An interesting idea. Yeah, which we I guess they don't succeed in. Don't. Well, they succeed well, they on their own terms. They do on they're just doing their own thing on the other side of the galaxy. Yeah. That's the hard thing with this world when you like you've got you know the future, you know the past. It's like but then again it is a universe, so it's like stuff can be happening on it's big, I guess. Yeah. Um so second sister or Trilla Suduri, so she was trained in the Jedi arts, obviously. She is an expert lightsaber duelist and one of the Empire's deadliest Jedi hunters. However, her strongest asset is her brilliant intellect and her be- her being able to anticipate the behavior of her prey, which makes her quite a difficult boss to fight towards the end. Um, the second sister was once a Jedi who learned the ways of the Force under Seer. In the aftermath of the Clone Wars, Trilla and Seer sought to hide from the newly risen Empire while protecting a group of Jedi younglings. 
Ultimately, they were both captured and subjected to torture, the torture and her master's betrayal and giving up her location, turning Trilla into second sister. Having forsaken her former identity and the Jedi way, the second sister becomes a relentless inquisitor dedicated to destroying the last remnants of the Jedi Order. An ambitious and cruel woman, she sadistically toyed with her prey and desired to win the approval of Emperor Palpatine. For most of the game, she is the primary antagonist. And a very compelling one. Yeah. I think they do a good job of, like, the reveal as well. It's like, oh, yeah, we're just being chased by the... It's like, oh, no, there's there's some more stakes here. It's personal. (laughs) Yeah. It's personal as well as professional. So the Inquisitorius, also known as the Inquisitorius Program, the Order of Inquisitors and the Imperial Inquisition, was an organization of mysterious, force-sensitive dark side agents who served the Sith-ruled Galactic Empire. Members of the Inquisitorius were called Imperial Inquisitors or simply Inquisitors, and were also nicknamed Red Blades because guess what? They all had red lightsabers that spin around in circles and it's cool. They can do the helicopter. But I know that's a very contentious thing among some hardcore fans is the helicopter uh, move that the Inquisitors can do and makes them fly. Mm. So, yeah, that's just, yeah, for all you out there, good on you. But, you know, it's cool, so deal with it. I think it's cool. Yeah. I think the Red Blades and the spinny circles (laughs) are cool. Hard to fight against, but fun. Yeah. They were tasked with hunting down the remaining Jedi who who survived Order 66 at the end of the Clone Wars as part of the Great Jedi Purge, as well as other political dissidents and retrieving any children identified as Force-sensitive. The Inquisitors Inquisitors were governed by the Sith Lord Darth Vader and led by an individual known only by his title, the Grand Inquisitor. Aside from Jedi Fallen Order, the Inquisitors play a large role in Star Wars Rebels. The Inquisitors were all former Jedi that had fallen to the dark side either by torture or corruption, with the Grand Inquisitor having served as a Jedi Temple Guard, the Ninth Sister being former Jedi Masana Tide, the Tenth Brother being the former Jedi Master Prosed Dibs, and the Second Sister being former Jedi Padawan Trilla Siduri. Darth Vader soon discovered the program and was put in charge of them by a Sith Master Darth Sidious. Vader trained the Inquisitors in the ways of the dark side of the Force. As part of their training, a number of Inquisitors had parts of their bodies severed by Vader's lightsaber so they would not forget the lesson of loss. After Vader cut off six brothers' left lower arm, the Grand Inquisitor began questioning Vader's training techniques. Vader claimed that he was intending to have the Inquisitors abandon their tendency to fight defensively as former Jedi and adopt more offensive moves because for Jedi, fighting with your lightsaber was a last resort and they didn't tend to attack so much as defend. During the Clone Wars, the Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Sidious, hired bounty hunter Cad Bane to kidnap several Force-sensitive children who would become Jedi younglings in the near future. At his private facility, Sidious intended to put the children through a slave conditioning process, having foreseen that he would have an army of Force-sensitive spies in his service. This operation failed, but obviously served as inspiration for the Inquisitor program. Um, also an episode in the Clone Wars TV series. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to do a little bit on Inquisitions in history because... There was some. We might as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, they existed and it, the inspiration for this... And weirdly, I suppose, Dragon Age Inquisition, except that I would say that the one in Jedi Fallen Order and Star Wars Rebels is more accurate than one in Dragon <laughs> Age Inquisition because the Inquisition are the good guys in that. And that's not, <laughs> not right. that's not how that goes. <laughs> As we will learn, they're not really good guys. I'm vaguely familiar with the idea of the Spanish Inquisition, but that's about it, I think. Yep. Yeah, well, 
The Inquisition had its origins in the early organized persecution of non-Catholic Christian religions in Europe. The Inquisition was a powerful office set up within the Catholic Church to root out and punish heresy throughout Europe and the Americas. Beginning in the 12th century and continuing for hundreds of years, the Inquisition is infamous for the severity of its tortures and its persecution of Jewish people and Muslims. Its worst manifestation was in Spain, where the Spanish Inquisition was a dominant force for more than 200 years, resulting in some 32,000 executions. Inquisitors would arrive in a town and announce their presence, giving citizens a chance to admit heresy. Those who confessed would receive a punishment ranging from pilgrimage to a whipping. Those accused of heresy were forced to testify. If the heretic did not confess, torture and execution were inescapable. Heretics weren't allowed to face accusers, received no counsel, and were often victims of false accusations. It's sort of like, you know, when people name witches, you know, just like accuse their neighbor because they didn't like their neighbor or the yeah. neighbor stole their cow. Just petty things. Yeah. There were countless abuses of power. Count Raymond Seventh of Toulouse was known for burning heretics at the stake, even though they had confessed. His successor, Count Alphonse, Alphonse, sounds right. I tried. <laughs> Confiscated the lands of the accused to incu- increase his riches, because of course he did. Because of course he did. In 1307, inquisitors were involved in the mass arrest and torture of 15,000 Knights Templar in France, resulting in dozens of executions. Joan of Arc, burned at the stake in 1431, is the most famous victim of this wing of the Inquisition. Now we get to the Spanish Inquisitions. In the late 15th century, King Ferdinand II and Queen Isabella of Spain believed corruption in the Spanish Catholic Church was caused by Jews who, to survive the centuries of anti-Semitism, converted to Christianity. Known as conversos, they were viewed with suspicion by old, powerful Christian families Conversos were blamed for a plague and accused of poisoning people's water and abducting Christian boys. Ferdinand and Isabella feared that even trusted conversos were secretly practicing their old religion. The royal couple was also afraid of angering Christian subjects who demanded a harder line against conversos. Christian support was crucial in an upcoming crusade against Muslims planned in Granada. Ferdinand felt an inquisition was the best way to fund that crusade by seizing wealth of heretic conversos. It's always about the money. Mm-hmm. It's always about that money. In 1478, under the influence of clergyman Tomas de Torquemada, the monarchs created the Tribunal of Castile to investigate heresy among conversos. The effort focused on stronger Catholic education for conversos, but by 1480, the inquisition had been formed. That same year, Jews in Castile were forced into ghettos, separated from Christians, and the Inquisition expanded to Seville. A mass exodus of conversos followed. In 1418, 20,000 conversos confessed to heresy, hoping to avoid execution. Inquisitors decreed that their penitents required them to name other heretics. By the year's end, hundreds of conversos were burned at the stake. Eventually, the church took more control over the Inquisition, but at first... Torquemada was named Inquisitor General and the tortures continued. The Inquisition spread to Spanish-controlled areas of America in the 1500s, and it technically didn't end until 1808 when Napoleon conquered Spain and ordered the Inquisition there to be abolished. So a long history of terrible, terrible crimes, Mm. just like Jedi Fallen Order. So they got that right, I guess. Yeah, that's true. And now we get to our last member of the Stinger Mantis' crew. 
So Marin is a knight sister who lives on her homeworld of Dathomir during the Imperial Era. A survivor of General Grievous's massacre of the Night Sisters during the Clone Wars, Marin encountered Jedi Master Taran Malakos, who crash landed on Dathomir following Order 66. Malakos, who fell to the dark side of the Force of, on Dathomir, manipulated Marin, wishing to learn Night Sister magic. When Cal visits Dathomir in search of the Tomb of Kujet, Marin realizes Ma- Malakos was deceiving her. She is reluctant to fight alongside Cal, as all she knows is that an armoured warrior brandishing a lightsaber had killed her people. And obviously Cal also has a lightsaber, but he's not armoured, so, you know, slight differences. Cal reassures her that he is on her side, and he shares his own story of a grief-stricken past. After working together to defeat Malakos, Marin joins Cal and the crew aboard the Stinger Mantis. So we're going to talk a bit about the Night Sisters and the Night Brothers, because I think they're awesome. They're some of my favorite concepts in the whole universe super interesting so the night sisters as we've already said also known as the witches of dathomir were a clan and order of magic wielding females who lived on dathomir these dark side users were able to perform their arcane magics by tapping into the magical icor that flowed from the depths of the planet since their power was at its most potent on their home planet the night sisters rarely ventured off world during the height of the galactic republic however this changed when a sister named talzin became the clan's mother during this time, Talzin worked along the Sith Lord Darth Sidious. Sidious ultimately betrayed Talzin. At the time of the Clone Wars, Talzin began to sell her sister's services as mercenaries to the galaxy's wealthy citizens. Following the end of the Clone Wars, the Night Sisters' massacre at the hands of Grievous and Dooku became known, with very few Night Sisters remaining like Marin. However, as the Night Brothers weren't wiped, um, however, the Night Brothers weren't wiped out. This they still exist, and you fight them in the game, and they're hard to kill, and it's really annoying. <laughs> but they look cool. Very cool design. Yeah, Marin would then take them as her servants, and they took control of Dathomir during the Age of the Galactic Empire. The most powerful of the Night Sisters could use the icor that they tap into to create their magic, um, to create objects out of thin air, transport people into ghostly versions of their true forms or reanimate the dead as is seen in the game when Marin reanimates the bones of past night sisters and they all run after you and it's cool but also scary yeah creepy yeah spooky shit they were also known to domesticate benign rancors although their powers resided in the dark side of the force the night sisters study differed from the power hungry ambitions of the sith or the seeking of knowledge of the Jedi Order, and as such did not hold, hold either's goal in high regard. They viewed everything from animals, weapons, and the Knight Brothers as tools to ensure their clan's survival, to be used without remorse, pity, or regret. Due to this mindset, they could avoid the passions and rage that swayed those in the Sith while wielding powers that the Jedi feared tapping into. The Knight Brothers originated from a group of criminal Zabraks, Exile, exiled to Dathomir, and they bonded with the Night Sisters. However, the Night Sisters take advantage of um, the exiled Zabrak's anger against the Republic for their exile to Dathomir, which is not a particularly homey planet, <laughs> and subjugated them, disallowing male membership into their clans. They lived in subservience to the Night Sisters' matriarch, Mother Talzin, until the Witch's near extinction during the Clone Wars. The infamous Maul, former apprentice to the Dark Lord of the Sith, Darth Sidious, was born a Night Brother, as was his brother and later apprentice Savage Opress, of the coolest name ever. Mm-hmm, again. Yeah. So I'll say it every time I get to say Savage Opress, because it's <laughs> just such a great name. 
and he's a very uh, he's very fitting for that name as well. Yeah. Very strong and scary. Yeah. So important to the game are the Zephyr, also known as the Zephyronians, um, who are an ancient sentient species native to the planet Zephyr. Many Zephyr could wield the wield the force, which they referred to as the life wind, and those who did became known as sages. The Zephyr had evolved on the planet of the same name, where they constructed many sites and relics dedicated to several Zephyr sages, and were protected by ancient automatons known as Tomb Guardians, who you you fight during the game, and I did not enjoy fighting them. They were difficult for me, personally. They had to just force them until they can't force them anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Three of the more esteemed sages, Ill... Ilram, Ilram, Kujet, and Mictrol were buried in elaborate tombs both on Zephyr and Dathomir. Their culture extended beyond their homeworld with elaborate temples and tombs built on Bagano, on Tothor, and Kashyyyk. Though the Zephyr originated as a peaceful culture, over time they became more and more corrupt, eventually falling to the dark side of the Force. Reigning in the time after the sages Ilram and Mictrol, Kujet ordered the destruction of the Astrians, the species used in their religious practices while promising their followers power and control over the life wind. But he proved to be treacherous and cruel with his reign, marking the decline of Zephyr culture. From their seat of power in Dathomir, Kujet staged a massacre in the halls of the palace, reducing the brave rebels opposed to their um, rule to ash and ruin. When Kujet died, they were entombed within a sarcophagus that was placed on the walls of their great temple. Within their dead hands, Kujet held one of the last remaining Astrians. Facing extinction, the remnants of the Zephyr fled into the Great Unknown, hoping to finally find peace. Um, and that's the weird message you get in the game with the Force vision and the giant Zephyr face in front of you. Yeah. Fun moment. <laughs> in the years before the Great Jedi Purge, Jedi Master Eno Cordova became fascinated by the near-extinct Zephyr, and Cal follows the clues he leaves behind to locate the holocron that is missing. Uh, so in terms of, like, Cal, he is one of the first characters we see to use the power of Force Echoes or have access to that particular power. That power is exactly lifted from a power that exists in both fiction and um, pseudoscience, but not pseudoscience, like... The, that sort of area of real human life um, called psychometry. So psychometry is a psychic pa- or psychometry is a psychic power whereby a character receives visions upon physical contact, sometimes involuntary. The most common form is when the person touches an object and receives information about things or people the object has associated with and or the environment around the object. It can also manifest as touching a person and getting visions or knowledge of their story, memories or character. Like Phoebe and Charmed, she has psychometry as her sort of original power before it grows into just receiving visions of the future from absolutely nowhere. Yeah. Um, It is not to be confused with psychometrics, which is a real-life branch of psychology concerned with measuring mental abilities. There is no proven ability for people to actually use psychometry. Or it should also not be confused with psychrometry which is the real life study of vapors so not either of those two things this is a weird pseudoscience not real thing that people think is real and they can unlock it in their brain if they just focus on shit hard enough 
should also maybe, you know, not name it something so similar to two other actual sciences. Well, you'll find out that all three of those words are Greek. Uh, of course. That's why. And they probably all share very similar root words. The Greeks, so, they ruined everything. Psychometry as a term was coined by Joseph R. Buchanan in 1842 from the Greek psyche, meaning soul or spirit or human mind, and metron, meaning measure. So that's two Makes root sense. words that are very, very <laughs> popular in um, naming things. Buchanan was an American professor of physiology um, and was one of the first people to experiment with, with psychometry using his or psychometry. I want to say psychometry. Using his students as subjects, not good ethics. He placed various drugs in glass vials and then asked the students to identify the drugs merely by holding the vials. I mean, at least he didn't ask them to take the drugs, but still, you shouldn't experiment on your students. That's not good. It's not recommended. No. Their success rate was more than chance, and he published the results in his book, Journal of Man. To explain the phenomenon, Buchanan theorized that all objects have souls that retain a memory. Intrigued and inspired by Buchanan's work, American professor of geology, William F. Denton, conducted experiments to see if psychometry would work with his geological specimens. In 1854, he enlisted the help of his sister, Anne Denton Cridge. The professor wrapped his specimens in cloth so Anne could not, could not see what they were. She then placed the package to her forehead and was able to accurately describe the specimens through, vivid, through the vivid mental images she was receiving. From... 1919 to 1922, Gustav Pagenstetcher, a German doctor and psychical researcher, discovered psychometric abilities in one of his patients, Maria Reyes de Zierold. While holding an object, object, Maria could place herself in a trance and state facts about the object's past and present, describing sights, sounds, smells, and other feelings about the object's experience in the world. Pagenstetcher's theory was that a psychometrist could tune into the experiential vibrations condensed in the object. But all of that is wacky stuff that has not been proven. I don't know. It sounds like proof. I mean, if you want to try more, you can wrap some stuff in cloth and get Alana to hold it up to her forehead and see if she can tell you what it is. Yeah, maybe. That could be a fun way to entertain ourselves. Yeah. Well, you don't have much else to do in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) At one point, you're going to run out of Netflix to watch. Yeah, that's very true. Um, Other characters with this ability include Ray in The Force Awakens um, and allegedly, which means it was listed on the TV Tropes webpage, but I, we don't really see him much in actual canon. Quinlan Voss also shares the power. Who's Quinlan Voss? Uh, he is friend of Obi-Wan Kenobi, appears in one episode of Clone Wars. He has the yellow tattoos on his face and dread, dreaded hair. Oh, okay, yep, yep, okay. He's the one Jedi Sentinel aside from the temple guards that we see. <laughs> yeah, he, he sounds familiar. Yeah, apparently he becomes the lover of... Um, Asajj Ventress at some point, and I was like, that's interesting. That I've never seen that. That must be in a comic or something. <laughs> yeah, it must be. Interesting. Ventress is cool. Yeah. That's the one thing I was talking about with Alex is like, we need more of her ending. We never got – yeah. it's like maybe she'll come in Bad Batch. We don't know. Love Asajj Ventress. But I wouldn't want to sleep next to her at night. She's a bit too murdery for yeah, that. Yeah, she's very murdery. Very murdery. Even when she has her redemption, she's still a bit murdery. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So because we talked a bit about how Merrin reanimates the sack bodies because they hang in sacks um, of the remains of various dead night sisters, and talk a bit about zombies. Zombies. 
Um, so a zombie, according to popular culture and folklore, is usually either a reawakened corpse with a ravenous appetite or someone bitten by another, another zombie and infected with a zombie virus. Zombies are usually portray, are portrayed as strong but robotic beings with rotting flesh. Their only mission is to feed. Would you say that's fair, Morgan? Yeah, it sounds like a zombie. There, there's yep. been different distinctions over time, but basically that's it. So zombie folklore originated in um, Haiti, possibly originating in the 17th century when West African slaves, and guess what, Morgan? Always comes back to slavery. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately. Yep. When West African slaves were brought in to work on Haiti's sugarcane plantations, when the country was known as Saint-Domingue and ruled by France. Slavery in Haiti at that time under the French was extremely brutal. Half of the slaves brought in from Africa were worked to death within a few years, which led only to the capture and import of more. So from there, the zombie, as it appeared in Haiti and um, at around that sort of time, mirrored the inhumanity that existed there from 1625 to around 1800 and was a projection of the African slaves' relentless misery and subjugation. Haitian slaves believed that dying would release them back to La Guinea, Land Guinea, or literally Guinea, or Africa in general, a kind of afterlife where they could be free. Though suicide was common among slaves, those who took their own lives wouldn't be allowed to return to Africa. Instead, they'd be condemned to skulk the Hispaniola plantations for eternity, undead slaves at once denied their own bodies and yet trapped inside them. You see how that... The zombies sort of evolved from that mm -hmm, idea. Mm -hmm. Also, so there's be like also kind of like hoodoo traditions as well, right? Well, we're getting there. Okay, okay. So it started there with the idea of the slaves being unable to return, um, their spirits unable to return, trapped inside their bodies. A very <laughs> dark and sad idea. Yep, can't go home. Another belief of the zombie involved what um, was that a witch doctor can render their victim apparently dead either through magic, powerful hypnotic suggestion, or perhaps a secret potion, and then revive them as their personal slaves since their soul or will has been captured. The zombie, in effect, is the logical outcome of being a slave, without will, without name, and trapped in a living death of unending labor. So it started as the idea of just slaves who were unable, who at their death were unable to return to this um, idea of the afterlife in Africa, and were instead stuck inside their bodies and continue being slaves for eternity. Uh, then mutates, not mutates, but like uh, trickles into folklore and spiritual belief that surrounds the idea of like witch doctors and not necessarily voodoo, but like those sorts of like religious practices and become sort of like a folklore about that. Um, and then from those folklore traditions, the zombie as a concept was then adopted into popular culture in the 20th century when America op occupied Haiti. And from then it sort of became sort of became part of America's cultural folklore um, and started appearing in movies and then continued to appear in movies and books and any sort of pulp fiction forever. Yeah, it's yeah, it's been around a very long time. Yeah. Um you, you know what? This it's it's almost it's almost Spooktober. Uh, just a quick it heads is. up. So um, and uh, this seems like a good time as any. Uh, if you're interested in zombies, we're going to be doing a zombie themed Spooktober over at Dealer's Choice this month, this year. Oh, yeah. So uh, we'll be 
a lot of the zombie movies we have just previously referenced. There's a lot. We'll probably be watching a couple of those. So if you want to learn more about zombies, keep an ear out for uh, Spooktober 2021. Yeah. Can't wait till you, Zach and Alec, go get into the folklore of zombies. <laughs> I'll definitely, I'll be definitely bringing some of my knowledge from here over to there for sure. Yep. Can't wait till you're having a good time. Then you're like, how about we talk about Haitian slavery? Yeah. You know, you know where the zombies came from, right? It's slavery. As many, many things have. Because um, we, we, we've, done, we've done some bad things in the past. So, you know, not surprised that the zombie are a creature of not great, not great things <laughs> being chased and eaten um, and then turning into an undead soulless being yourself evolved from that because yeah. they both suck and I wouldn't want to I don't want to live in a world with zombies. It's all about coming full circle and our deeds catching up with us. It sure is. <laughs> also, zombies scare me. <laughs> yeah, they are pretty scary. Yeah. All right. So since we've talked about the Night Sisters, who are witches in their own right, some of the coolest witches I've ever seen on TV, and I don't say that lightly because I've seen a lot, we're going to talk about some witches in mythology and folklore. Not all of them because we might come across witches again in some other episode and I need content. <laughs> <laughs> So we're just going to do a few. So um, one of my favorite witches is Baba Yaga. Do you know about Baba Yaga? Baba Yaga. Um, the boogie woman, the boogeyman. Or yeah. The Russian folktale, basically. Folk tale, yeah. So um, in Russian folktales, Baba, I would say Baba Yaga, but you can say Baba Yaga if you want, is an old witch who can either be fearsome and scary or the heroine of a tale. And sometimes she is both. She's neither good nor bad. She's just doing her own thing. And if you disturb her, that's on you. She is described as having teeth of iron and a frightfully long nose. Baba Yaga lives in a hut on the edge of the forest, which can move around on its own and is depicted as having the legs of a chicken. Chicken legs. Hut on chicken legs. It's sort of like the prototype for House Moving Castle, but also a hut with the legs of a chicken that walks around is way cooler. Yeah, that actually does sound a lot like... Uh... What is it? How's Moving Castle? Yeah. Um, Baba Yaga does not, unlike many traditional folkloric witches, fly about on a broomstick. I'm not sure if you know this. She doesn't use a broomstick. Instead, she rides around on a giant mortar and pestle. Uh, bold choice for transportation. <laughs> I think it's cool as shit because, like, sure, you're flying across the skies in your giant mortar and pestle. You see some herbs. You swoop down. You pick them up. And then you just crush them as you go. You can just keep doing your potions on the go. <laughs> All your herb lore. On the go. You don't need to stop. You just keep going. It's all about efficiency. Time management. It absolutely is. I mean, she's a witch. She's got all her potions to make. She <laughs> don't have time to stop. She just does it on the go. She sweeps away the um, traps from her giant mortar and pestle behind her with a broom made of silver birch. In general, no one knows whether Baba Yaga will help or hinder those who seek her out. Often bad people get the just desserts through her actions, but it's not so much that she wishes to re rescue the good as it is that evil always brings its own consequences and Baba Yaga is simply there to see those punishments reach their logical conclusion. So that's Baba Yaga. She has many good tales in folklore where she is both sometimes villain, sometimes hero, sometimes both, just a great morally great character. Just cruising around on the mortar and pestle, doling out judgments or saving the day, whatever she's in the mood for. Feeding you to her domovoi, but, you know, you probably did something. Yeah, you deserved it. Um, next, we're going to talk about Grimhild, who is from Norse mythology. So she was a sorceress married to King 
And now this is going to be a fun one, and I apologize. I'm not from any Scandinavian country. Yuki, one of the Burgundian kings, and a story appears in the Volsunga saga where she is described as a fierce-hearted woman. Grimhild was easily bored and often amused herself by enchanting various people, including the hero Sigurd, whom she wanted to see marry her daughter Gundrun. The spell worked, and Sigurd left his wife Brynhild. Grimhild, uh, Grimhild also wanted her son Gunnar. Gunnar? Gunnar? You'd Gunnar? think I'd be doing better at this, considering <laughs> I'm playing so much Assassin's Creed Valhalla, but I'm not. Um, she decided her son Gunnar should marry the spurned Brynhild, but Brynhild did not like that idea. I assume because she was married to Sigurd and she was fine with that. And then Grimhild just stuck her nose in her business when it made it all go pear-shaped. Yeah. So Brynhild, smart lady that she is, said she would only marry a man who was willing to cross a ring of fire for her. So Brynhild created a circle of flames around herself and dared her potential suitors to cross it. I like Brynhild. She seems like she's got real fire. <laughs> And not just the one surrounding her body, but like inside, inside fire. She's spicy. (laughs) Sigurd, who could cross the flames safely, knew that he'd be out of trouble if he could see his ex happily remarried. See, now Sigurd, he seems like a bit of a dog. So he offered to switch bodies with Gunnar and get across. He's just like real shifty. Yeah, a little shifty. Decides he wants a new wife and a sorceress for a stepmom. And it's just like, "Mm." well, not stepmom, mother-in-law, but you know. Mm Mm-hmm. Brynhild was fooled into marrying Gunnar. And when she figured out she'd been tricked, and now Sigurd brought this on himself, when she figured out she'd been tricked, she killed Sigurd and then herself. And really, I think she probably just should have stopped at killing Sigurd because I'm going to miss Brynhild, and I think she should have just killed him and then gone on her own way and done her own thing. No need, yeah, just get revenge. No need to, you know, let it ruin you. Yeah. The only one who came out of the whole shebang, the whole story, relatively unscathed was Gundren, Grimhild's daughter, who ended up marrying Brynhild's brother, Atli. Um, so good on her. Happy ending. She got something, but like <laughs> worked out pretty poorly for everyone else. Yeah. Um, lastly, we're going to talk about Morgan Le Fay, who we've talked about a bit before when we've done our various mentions of Arthur. And his stories. So her first appearance is in Geoffrey of Monmouth's Monmouth's The Life of Merlin, written in the first half of the 12th century. Um, Morgan Le Fay has become known as a classic seductress who lures men with her witchy wiles and then causes all kinds of shenanigans and casts spells and does trickery and is generally sort of like the untrustworthy sorceress woman and seductress yeah sounds like a she always seems like a cool character to me you know seems like she gets to do all the fun stuff <laughs> so yeah i feel like uh yennefer from witcher has kind of got morgan vibes yeah she sure does <laughs> um and of course morgan you're very lucky in that you share her name yeah cool name sometimes is yeah. it morgan lefay or sometimes does she go by morgana i feel like it's i've heard both. it both yeah yeah so it can be morgan lefay or morgana lefay they're just cognates of the same name, really. Yeah. Um, and then we get this name that is from a previous episode that I'm going to have to try and do again. So good luck to me. Carrieton de Trois. De Trois. De Trois. De Trois. That sounds French. Carrieton de Trois. Yep. That... I can't help you. If it's not, have don't Google that. You won't get the same result. I mean, you could have fooled <laughs> me. That sounded wrote. pretty good. <laughs> 
I tried my best. Um, wrote the Volgate Cycle, which sounds cool, describe, and describes her role as one of Queen Guinevere's ladies in waiting. According to this collection of Arthurian tales, um, Morgan fell in. It does sound weird saying Morgan fell in <laughs> love with Arthur's nephew, Geomar, because you are also Morgan. So maybe I'll say Morgana. That way we know who we're talking <laughs> Just about. Just so we can differentiate. Yeah. Morgana fell in love with Arthur's nephew, Geomar. Unfortunately, Guinevere found out and put an end to the affair. So Morgana exact, exacted her revenge by busting Guinevere, who was fooling around with Sir Lancelot. Um, classic, classic part of the tale is that Guinevere is not faithful, and Sir Lancelot is also not faithful, and that really, really destroys Arthur. Yeah, it's a downfall. Yeah, not good. And Morgana is also involved in that. But... Conniving. Well, I would say if someone's cheating on someone. It's fair enough to tell someone else yeah. who's involved in that relationship. Also, yeah, she was just, you know, she wasn't cheating. She was just hanging out with a dude. I mean, maybe. Maybe. We don't know. I mean, true, we don't know. Um, but either way, Morgana was looking cool and doing spells at the same time, so. That's all you want to do in life, isn't it? Um, so her name translates to Morgan or Morgana of the Fairies. That's what La Fay means um, in French. And she appears again in um, Sir Thomas Mar- Mallory's Le Mort d'Arthur in which she was unhappily married to King Urien. At the same time, she became a sexually aggressive woman who had many lovers, including including the famous Merlin. Um, however, it is also implied in that that she is in love with Lancelot, and that's unrequited because obviously he's in love with Guinevere. So lots of, like, love triangles and sexy stories and trickery and shenanigans. Classic medieval tales. Yeah. Well, you know, they've got to have fun somewhere. Yeah, that's true. Um, and they're all going to church, so, like, the only people who can have fun are people in stories. Mm-hmm, very true. Got to, what is it, live vicariously through the stories. Yeah. Other witches in mythology and folk- folklore include Circe, Medea, La Bifana, and Gulveg Hyde, but we won't be covering them today. So just to wrap up my thoughts about Jedi Fallen Order... Um, I'd just like to say that, again, with a found family theme. Star Wars franchises just seem to do better with it than without it. It just seems to work. I don't know what it is about, like, the current mindset of people who enjoy any sort of media, but if it's found family, people seem to latch onto it a lot more. <laughs> yeah, people love the idea that it's like, yeah, you the family, you may have lost your family, but you can choose a family as well. Yeah, for the family you choose. Yeah. Not just your real family, but any family <laughs> has extra on that as well. Extra family. Who doesn't want it? <laughs> just a side helping of extra family, please. <laughs> I really appreciate in this game the weight that's given to Seer and Trilla and their sort of personal complex storyline. And also I find it, I find Sears' decision to cut off from the Force very interesting. Um, and I think that it could seem like an obvious sidelining if it was not a game. Like if it was any out of the media, Seer being like a former Jedi but not being able to use the Force because she willingly cut off from it would seem like she – it was like it might be wasted potential or a missed opportunity, but because it's within the context of a game and also like her – within the context of her relationship to Trilla, it doesn't. And I, I think that's really cool. Mm. But I do think it would be interesting in, like, further 
explorations of the Star Wars canon to have characters because one of the reasons that she cuts off is that she touched the dark side and she decided that it was too much temptation after that to continue using the force that it was better if she just removed herself from that removed her ability to do that because of what happened with Trilla and that moment where she kills everyone when she finds out that Trilla's become second sister. Yeah. Um, I think it would be interesting in like further canon to have a character who, you know, to, you know, explore the concept of the gray Jedi. I know that that's not something that's probably going to happen, but I think it's interesting or to have characters who like Darth Vader, who, who, but he, he obviously the problem with Darth Vader is he returns to the light side, but he dies immediately afterwards to have characters who might, you know, be tempted by the dark side and, you know, give in to it, but then return to the light and like recommit to finding a new way towards functioning within that concept of like balance. Yeah. I just think it would be interesting if they explored that at some point, but I, I'm not upset that they didn't do that with Seer. I think that Seer's decision to cut off from the force was an interesting and important take it for the way that the game, the, like the storyline and the relationships work out. Yeah, I agree. I think it was important. And like it, it starts off just kind of like okay, but then you get you understand like how powerful it is later when the reveal happens. But yeah, it makes sense. I think yeah. it's also like you know maybe she will pick it back up. Like she needs that redemption of like maybe starting the new Jedi Temple and then she'll yeah forgive herself enough to do it again. Who knows? That's future stories. But yeah, yeah, unwritten. And who knows who will write them? It could be you, Morgan. Yeah, maybe it could be you. And then if you don't do something I like, I will take my criticism right <laughs> criticism right to the source. You can criticize my personal fan blog. Yeah. I know I've banged on about the Night Sisters a lot and how cool I think they are. But I'm just going to say one last time. I think that they're a really compelling part of the Clone War series. And I think that it's really, I think it's a good move for the game in including them and allowing you to explore, explore Dathomir and recruit Marin. I think that's almost a genius move that they decided to do that because the Night Sisters are a really interesting part of Star Wars canon. And but they also feel underused. Yeah, well it's also like it's that thing where it's like for so long it's like light and dark. And then now you start to get the concept of grey Jedi's, but then you start now it's like, well, there's actually like these they use the dark side of the force, but they're not necessarily like it's these different like we're slowly seeing how the force is used in different ways and mm. it's not just split in two. It's kind of yeah. all blending together and like the Night Sisters occupy a very important space in that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Very insightful. Um, touching on some topics that are coming up in my PhD. <laughs> <laughs> um, where Star Wars is a text. So well done, Morgan. You've condensed into a couple of words what's taking me a couple of months to get to. Yeah, feel free to use that in uh <laughs> in your uh PhD. <laughs> Um, and that brings us to the end of the episode. We made it, guys. We, did we done it. did it. And we've done another section of Star Wars, I guess, crossed up that area of the universe. We'll slowly chip away at it. It's a big universe. It is. It, it's too big, some might say. <laughs> also, but not big enough. <laughs> Could it be is bigger. a complex, evolving machine. Could be bigger, could be better in some aspects as well. But you know, that's true. <laughs> Not everything in the Star Wars universe is good. Some of it we want to toss in the garbage. <laughs> I think uh, we touched on almost all the recommendations throughout, I believe. But yeah, the, the, oh, did we mention the Bad Batch? No, we yeah. didn't mention the Bad Batch. That was a continuation. That yeah. the first episode is also very similar to how um, 
it, uh... Well, it goes through Order 66 and the dissolution of the Galactic Republic into the Empire. Yeah, but it's it's Kanan is at the start, but it's very similar to Cal. Sorry, that's the name of it. But yeah, like yeah. Kanan's thing is very similar to how Cal's journey starts in yeah. the game as well, sort of. Um, but yeah, that's that's something to check out as well, as well as Rebels and all the other Clone Wars. Yes. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's basically most of our recommendations is more Star Wars franchises. So the Bad Batch, which is on Disney Plus, the Clone Wars also on Disney Plus. And by Clone Wars, I mean the TV series, not the movies. The movies are fine, but the TV series is so much better. And then um, if you're looking for more Star Wars, but not in the TV um, arena, uh, a book series uh, that sort of spans the years between the new trilogy and the original trilogy. Yeah. Yeah, because it's taking this taking part in sort of just after Star Wars Rebels is Alphabet Squadron, um, which concerns Starship pilots in the Rebellion. So quite an interesting book series. Uh, it currently has two books out with a third one to come, so I recommend that. Get on it while it's hot. All right, that's it. <laughs> cool. We We're all done. We'll see you next time. Another day of work, clocking off. Yeah, thank you for listening, and uh, thanks again, Finn, for doing all the research and coming along to what's enlighten us is the word uh thanks again enlighten like the light side of the force yep exactly like that like my white jedi lightsaber (laughs) exactly like that uh thank you for listening again and we'll see you next time this has been a spiky trap radio production for more spiky trap radio content please head to spikytrap.com